Good morning, everyone. Dramatic between the desire to do right, then I actually don't do it, and the desires that I know are wrong, and I actually do those. What am I supposed to do? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And Paul was referring to life without Jesus Christ, trying to obey God's law or trying to expose how bad our situation is, how messed up things are in us, how our desires are disorder, and we can't effectively do it apart from Jesus Christ. And then he interjects triumphantly, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Moving on, Paul, uh, in our chapter, chapter 8 today, Paul continues to flesh out what it means to be in Jesus Christ and what it looks like to follow God's law in Christ. He, if you want to follow along in your bulletins, we're working in the Romans passage today. And Paul begins by saying, first of all, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been forgiven, cleansed, and redeemed. There is no more condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about two different kinds of law. He, it's particularly what he's uh, talking about is two different ways of keeping God's law. And he says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The law, that is the way of following the law, of trying to keep some kind of moral code apart from the saving work of Jesus. Trying to follow the law in that way only reveals what a mess we are. Remember Paul's inner conflict. I I can't do the right thing even though I want to do it. And I do the wrong things that I don't want to do. It shows us that we can't please God on our own. That's the law of sin of death, trying to follow the moral law apart from the work of Christ. But Paul says this. He says, Christians, if you are in Christ, you've actually been set free from that bondage of following the law in that way. You've been set free from the burden of carrying that law and trying to fulfill it perfectly and seeing what a mess you actually are and how unable you are to do that. He says you've been set free from that. And you actually follow the law in a different way. And he refers to this way as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is a different way of keeping God's law. It's approached by life in Christ Jesus, life in relationship with Jesus. It means we're able to live according to God's will because we've accepted God's forgiveness of our sinfulness in Christ. But it also means that we can effectively obey God now. Because his spirit dwells in us, enabling us to do so. But what's the purpose of obeying God's law? Have you ever thought about this? Is it simply so we can go to heaven when we die? The last century or two of Christian teaching in the Western world became rather obsessed with this idea of floating off to some ethereal realm when we die as a reward for accepting Jesus and obeying God's word. But I'm afraid that's a bit of a diminished view. In fact, I dare say it's an unbiblical view. And if we are to understand this whole issue, what we have to do is zoom out and take a wider view of things. A few chapters back in this letter to the Romans, Paul was on to a conversation about Adam. You know, the chap who originally got us into this mess of sin and disobedience. 
And he makes this brilliant connection between Adam and Jesus Christ. And he talks about how they're contrasting lives and their, uh, the different effects that their lives had on all of humanity. Listen to what he says back in chapter 5. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. He's talking about Adam and Jesus. He's pointing out that one man's action led up all of humanity into a kind of exile, the exile of sin, people being lost, unable to please God and carry out his purposes in the world. But this other man, this other obedient man, reversed the effects of the first man's actions, and he brings people into righteousness. He's picturing Christ here as a new faithful Adam. So here's the picture, and it's going to get bigger and bigger as we move on. Adam was made in the image of God. Do you remember the passage in Genesis 1 where God says, let us make man, Adam, in our image? Remember that passage? Adam was made in the image of God. Well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means to be an image bearer. And in the ancient world, an image bearer of a god was generally an idol that sat inside of that god's temple and represented that god to, to that god's people. But in Scripture, the true God of heaven and earth makes a human being to be his image bearer. And he says, you will bear my image faithfully in the world, representing me to the world. Now, I want to give you a definition of what an image bearer is. It's a bit of a mouthful, so bear with me and I'll repeat it. An image bearer in this, in the biblical sense of the word, is an authorized steward charged with the vocation of representing God's rule in the world. That's important for today. An image bearer is an authorized steward charged with the vocation of representing God's rule in the world. But Adam fails through disobedience, and that failure causes his image-bearing vocation to become broken and marred. Now, fast forward to Jesus, who lives a perfectly obedient life, who faithfully represents God as his image-bearer in the world, through healings, through the calming of storms, through obedience to God's law, and most powerfully in his self-giving act of love on the cross. He is the perfect image bearer, reflecting God's love and faithfulness to the world. You see how the effects of Adam are undone in Jesus? And now here's the big thing for us. When a person is in Christ, that person has had the image bearing that they were intended to have restored. Your image bearing vocation has been restored in Jesus Christ because you have become, a, come, you have become one of God's image bearers in the world now, a faithful steward, an authorized steward to represent God's will in his ways and his character in the world. By faith and baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled once again to be restored image bearers. So when Paul says that there's this new kind of way to keep the law, what he refers to as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, don't think he's just saying this is simply a new, improved way of keeping rules. He is saying something much bigger than that. He's saying, if you're in Christ, 
you've been restored as an image bearer of the creator God. Your sins have been cleansed. And the Spirit of God has come to dwell in you and enable you to faithfully bear his image in all that you do. That's important. In all that you do, you are an image bearer. We often think of our lives as split between the spiritual and the ordinary everyday, don't we? We do. We separate those out. But remember, the original image bearer, Adam, his vocation was to name animals and raise a garden and start a family. And he certainly didn't see those, those things as unspiritual. And neither did God. Don't get me wrong. Worship and prayer and the spiritual disciplines and all of those things are very important part of being God's image bearers. The things that we generally refer to as spiritual. Those are important things. But so is your work as an accountant or a computer scientist or a graphic artist or a doctor or a biologist or a builder or a janitor. The way you are present to your family, the way you interact with others in public, you're God's representatives in all that, too. Now, here's the thing. Once we start to follow Jesus, we don't suddenly become image bearers. We actually have to make an effort to take up the vocation that God is giving to us. We have to cooperate. And there still lies within us a battle. Paul goes on to describe it like this. To set the mind on the flesh, and that is a reference to the sinful nature, the sinful inclinations in us, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here's what he's saying. If you're going about concerned with pleasing yourself, indulging in things you shouldn't be, neglecting to live for others, you're being controlled by that old Adam nature. You're being a broken image bearer. You are not faithfully showing the world who God is. In fact, those are things that lead to death, physical and spiritual. He says, you're not faithfully representing in God. In fact, Paul uses very, very, very harsh language here. And he says, you are in fact hostile to God if you live according to the flesh, according to the sinful desires. You cannot make a way of life out of that. But, he says, if you set your mind on the Spirit, that is, if you live as a restored image bearer that Christ has made you, you'll experience life and peace. So to sum it up, he says there's two ways of living, two ways of trying to be human, but one of them isn't really living at all. The real life, the image-bearing life, life with God in Christ. It is a life that has been made new by God's redeeming love that has been made alive by the breath of God's Spirit breathed into you. It is a life that lives and moves and breathes in the power of God's Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't end here. He doesn't end here and say, well, that's the end of the story. Go and be good. He gives us an even bigger picture view. The, the view begins to expand even more. A view that shows us what this image-bearing, spirit-filled life is pointing towards. He's showing us that it has a goal, an ultimate destination it is aiming at. And he says this at the very end of the passage. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead 
will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. That is, Jesus was raised from the dead, and if you've got his spirit in you, living with his spirit in you, controlling you, guiding you, loving you, you'll be raised too. Now, why does he assert this right here? At first glance, it seems rather out of place to start discussing the resurrection all of the sudden, doesn't it? What it actually does is it puts this whole conversation about living life in the Spirit in context. Remember, the Christian's hope is not in a disembodied, ethereal heaven somewhere out there. It is in a new, restored creation. In the Bible, we don't float off to heaven. Heaven, which is God's dwelling place, comes down to earth and restores things. And next week, we're going to continue in chapter 8 of Romans, and Paul is going to say quite a few things about this. And we're going to get an even larger view than we get today of the final goal of all of this. But it is that new creation to which we are raised incorruptible with Christ. It is in that new creation that the Bible tells us this, that we will actually reign over that new creation with Jesus That might sound like blasphemy. Oh, reign with Jesus? How could that be possible? But uh, recently in our Christian ed class, we went through the great amount of biblical witness that tells us we will reign with the Lord and be stewards of his new creation. And that that new creation will be a place of beauty. It will be a place of peace, perfect peace. It will be a place of abundance and art and feasting. And God's glory, Paul tells us, will be all in all. And so what Paul is saying is, if that's the final end for you, if if you have the Spirit dwelling in you and you know you're going to be raised from the dead into that new creation, you ought to live like it in the here and now. In fact, Scripture tells us that in Christ we are new creation. We've, in a sense, been brought into this project, this restoration project of God's renewed world. How many of you like going to the movies on time to make sure that you catch all of the previews for the coming attractions? How many of you like to do that? I like to do that, except when every preview is for a superhero movie. I'm getting a little burnt out. Sorry, superhero movie fans. But that is just what our lives are right now. Previews to what is to come. Previews so that others can see what a world governed by God's peace and faithfulness and love and abundance, looks like. That is what the church's life should look like. It should be a signpost to that world. The ancient Christians did this well. One example I came across in my reading was this. In the ancient world, which is now uh, in in an area that's now modern-day Turkey, there was often plagues. And when those plagues came, the well-to-do including most of the doctors, would flee from the city to the mountains for fresh, clean air and leave everybody else in the city who did not have the means to do so. But the Christians would stay behind to take care of the sick and the afflicted. They took care of not only fellow Christians, not only family, but non-Christians and people to whom they had no relational ties. And a lot of the times, the Christians themselves would pick up diseases and die. And when people ask them why in the world they do such a thing, they'd explain that their faith in Christ 
gave them hope for a restored world where God would reign and where there wouldn't be any more plagues and sickness. So instead of running off with everyone else for their own comfort and well-being, they felt it was their duty to bear God's image, to represent God in their world by being a healing presence to those who were suffering. For us, it's like this. We extend peace to our enemies, not just because we feel obligated. We do it because we know we belong to a world where peace will reign. We don't abstain from adultery and greed and theft just because we want to keep certain rules. We do it because we're the image bearers of a God who is faithful and benevolent. We don't live by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus because we hope to escape this awful world, but because God has redeemed us and called us to be his representatives in this world, a world he wants to save. So as we think about life in the spirit, what it means to live life in the spirit as a disciple of Jesus, when we think about what it means to follow God's law, we have to keep this big picture view in mind because it will help us from slipping into a a, a narrow moralism where all we're concerned with is keeping a list of rules. That's a narrow view. It's not a biblical view. Keeping the the big is a small means, one of the means to a greater end. And keeping the big picture in mind will also do this. It will bring joy to all that we do because of the hope we have, knowing that we do all that we do as restored image bearers of the God who will make all things new. Amen. Please stand.